The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Happy Chinese New Year. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy President's Day. You know, we had so much politics in the course of this grisly re-impeachment week, and we covered an awful lot of it Monday to Friday on Fox News Primetime. Hope you caught those shows, and we're going to be covering a lot of it in another overly political week ahead that I thought we'd have a bit of a palate cleanser today. I got no news for you uh, except for a story from Oldham in Lancashire. Uh, That's an old English music hall joke. What's the best way to Oldham? A 70-year-old man from Oldham, Frank Wathwell, has become the oldest man to row the Atlantic. He said it was, quote, really, really boring. What's the best way to Oldham? There's really only one way to hold oars, and every stroke's the same. And there's nothing to look at on the Atlantic Ocean except more ocean. So the septuagenarian grandfather came fourth out of eight, but said he was bored stiff. Also bored stiff is Mark Ratashek, who lives at the corner of Avenue F and 8th Street in Council Bluffs, Iowa. After months of COVID lockdown, he was going nuts with boredom. So his missus told him to paint the house. So he painted it black for Halloween. And he so enjoyed it that he painted it orange for Thanksgiving and then something festive and candy cane for Christmas. Uh, And it's currently bright pink for Valentine's weekend. He's already ordered gallons of green for St. Patrick's Day, bored by lockdown into watching paint dry every month. Beats that re-impeachment trial. Okay, okay, I'll start with a bit of politics, albeit somewhat cobwebbed. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A mountainous republic, a nightingale stilled, and Kaiser Bill speaks. It's February 1921. A hundred years from today. Your World News update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. Kaiser Bill, Wilhelm II has given his first interview since abdicating the German throne. You can get the gist of it from the headline in the Brooklyn Daily Times. My people betrayed me, God and selves, says ex-Kaiser in first interview. The meeting at Amerongen Castle in Holland was obtained by a Dutchman, Heinrich Petermeyer, who sold exclusive worldwide rights to United Press. His former Imperial Majesty informed Meneer Petermeyer that, quote, we would never have lost the war if the German people had remained true to themselves and that since their betrayal and eviction of him, quote, notice how God scourges the whole world. I'd like to see the
Would post-imperial Germany like to see the Kaiser with a lily in his hand? Its Chancellor, Konstantin Ferenbach, has accepted an invitation to attend the reparations conference to be hosted by the Allied premiers on March the 1st. The French government has already approved a dramatic restructuring and reduction in German war reparations. The world's largest ocean liner is the SS Bismarck. It was launched by the Hamburg-American line in June 1914, but never sailed because of the World War that started two months later. Under the Treaty of Versailles, it was surrendered by Berlin to Great Britain as part of German war reparations. After being badly gutted in a suspicious fire last year, it has now been sold to the White Star and Cunard lines. We assume that name, the SS Bismarck, will be changed. No shrinking of the fleet in Japan. The House of Representatives in Tokyo has voted down overwhelmingly a proposal to reduce the number of new ships for the Imperial Japanese Navy. Bolshevik power is on the march far beyond Mother Russia. In Georgia, a Moscow-incited rebellion against the ruling Mensheviks started in Lori province. It has now spread to Tbilisi province, where the Mensheviks have abandoned Borchalo district to the Bolsheviks. A Russian invasion is said to be imminent. On the other hand, in the Armenian capital of Yerevan, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation has risen up against the Bolshevik faction who proclaimed the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic. In less than a week, the ARF has driven the Bolsheviks and their Red Army allies out of the capital and declared a new state called the Republic of Mountainous Armenia. In British India, His Royal Highness the Duke of Connaught, former Governor-General of Canada and uncle of the King Emperor, has opened the new bicameral legislative body comprising a lower house, the Assembly, and an upper house, the Council of State, including for the first time, albeit in an advisory role, representatives of the people of the subcontinent. This is an Indian-wide version of the provincial councils that have recently been inaugurated. In the United States, a joint session of Congress has received the results of the Electoral College and certified the election of Warren Harding as president and Calvin Coolidge as vice president. 404 members voted to certify the results, 127 voted against. The U.S. Census Bureau has announced that the mean centre of the American population has moved further southwest, as it has done for over a century, to the extreme southeast corner of Owen County, Indiana, 8.3 miles southeast of the town of Spencer. It was previously about one-fifth of a mile north of Bloomington, Indiana, so that is a move of about 13 miles, which is the shortest move in the mean centre of population since 1800. Perhaps the American people are settling down.
Breeze blow my baby back to me. That's what they're saying in Georgia. Thirty-two people have been killed and forty others injured by a tornado that swept through the Negro community of Gardner. In Washington County, Georgia, over 100 people have been left homeless by the twister. Since its discovery in 1887, Hansen Cave on Mount Timpanagos in the American Fork Canyon has been one of the great wonders of Utah. Now a second cave has been discovered by Verl Manuel and his colleagues, or perhaps rediscovered. Apparently it was found and then lost again in 1913, but they won't make that mistake a second time. And so on Valentine's Day 1921, Mr. Manuel has found what he calls the Great Heart of Timpanagos. I'm a bullfighter. of a Spanish onion, I sing ta-ta with my guitar. My father was a nut from Barcelona, and so was ma, so there you are. Oh, you walk to see me in the arena, I smack the ball and break the skull. I've got medals and things from Princess Ina for being a flyer and a bit of a story. Fling, flong, fling, flong, don't go to the bar. Fling, flong, fling, flong, please stop where you are. You'll hear me fling, you'll hear me flong, and then you'll shout it, Pippera. And you wish that I would strangle with the strings of my guitar. Now, you play it now, see? It gives me a good rest while you're playing. I never sing second time. That's how I know. Symphony now. You may wonder why a Spanish bullfighter is singing a Neapolitan song, but it was close enough for George Formby. The popular English stage comedian was known as the Wigan Nightingale because of the way he used his bronchial cough in his northern songs. The cough wasn't really funny, as the son of a distinctive four-foot-tall prostitute who was frequently in jail, Mr Formby spent much of his childhood sleeping outdoors. As a result, he contracted asthma, made worse by tuberculosis, and then by a stage accident in 1916. Then came the Spanish flu. And George Formby is now dead at the age of 45. He was a great influence on the screen comedian Charlie Chaplin and on many other lesser entertainers. After the funeral, the second and bigamous Mrs Formby took their son, also called George Formby, to a show at the Victoria Palace to cheer him up. It did not work. Young George watched a man called Tommy Dixon use his father's jokes, his father's songs, his father's mannerisms and costumes and bill himself as the new George Formby. Young George Formby was so disgusted that he is now determined to follow his father onto the stage and reclaim his legacy for the family.
The painter Sir William Richmond is dead at 79. He was a successful portraitist of William Morris and Robert Louis Stevenson, but is best known for his colourful mosaics in St Paul's Cathedral, which were initially said to be too Byzantine for an English church. Peter Kropotkin, the famous anarchist, is dead at 78. He came from a Russian aristocratic family but dropped his princely title at the age of 12. In 1917, he returned to Russia after 40 years in exile to be welcomed home by tens of thousands of cheering supporters. Mr Kropotkin became increasingly disillusioned by the revolution but retained his following who filled the streets for his funeral procession. By kind permission of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, many of the anarchists waved anti-Bolshevik placards. And that's the way of the world, February 1921. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. This weekend is Chinese New Year and Todd Hines, a first month founding member of the Mark Stein Club from my home province of Ontario, isn't fully on board with it. With reference uh, to Tucker and me uh, on the telly the other night about the Politburo laughing at us, Todd writes, maybe it's just that I'm more aware or sensitive to the issue as compared to previous years. But they surely must be laughing their behinds off at the degree to which Western media and commerce has promoted and mainstreamed the Lunar New Year. I mean, sure, I expect it to be recognised in local communities and on the Google homepage banner, but all week here in Canada, I've been bombarded with Lunar New Year stories, references in the regional and national press, pop-up banner ads, and practically everywhere I've turned online. Oh, dear, Todd, I I really don't want to be one of those sinophobic holdouts. And it occurs to me that here at the Mark Stein Show, we ought to spend more time observing Chinese holidays just so we stay on the right side of Chairman Xi. Uh, This is the start of the year of the ox. And this is certainly the year the Chinese Communist Party intends to gore our ox. The most famous poem about oxen is a Christmas poem, and I'm not sure uh, Chinese Christmas immediately precedes Chinese New Year the way it does in New Hampshire. Uh, But the author had lost his Christian faith by the time of this work, so perhaps the Politburo will let it slide. Thomas Hardy was 75 when he wrote this poem, a meditation on a childhood memory that stayed with him and which he returned to over the years in 1898, in a letter to his fellow author Edmund Goss, Hardy referred to, quote, the belief still held in remote parts hereabout that the cattle kneel at a particular moment in the early hours of every Christmas morning, just at or after 12 midnight. Why believing livestock in Dorset should be so precisely attuned to the Greenwich Meridian, is a subject for another day, but it was widely believed in Hardy's boyhood back in the 1840s that your own herd would kneel in honour of the Saviour's birth as they did in a stable in Bethlehem all those years ago. 
It is perhaps a child's fancy, like Santa Claus, so Hardy uses childhood language. The reference to meek, mild creatures is an obvious echo of Charles Wesley's hymn for children, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild, and the language harks back to Hardy's boyhood too, Barton, an archaic term for farmyard, coombe for a small hollow. All that has changed is the small boy who is now an old man and no longer believes the tale. Well, that's not strictly true. Uh, All that has changed is the entire world, which is now at the second Christmas of a monstrous war that was supposed to be over before the first Christmas. And so Hardy says he would like to believe, he would like to walk over to the barn in 1915 and see the cattle kneeling, because he fears the world he has known is unravelling, even in Dorset. He took a more optimistic view in a poem published just a few days later in Time of the Breaking of Nations, Uh, but I'm not sure he quite believes his optimism there. But that's what makes this Christmas poem appropriate as we begin the year of the ox and stand on the brink of another great unravelling of the world, so we cling to the old certainties, hoping it might be so. First published in London, in The Times, on Christmas Eve 1915, by Thomas Hardy, The Oxen. Christmas Eve and twelve of the clock. Now they are all on their knees. An elder said as we sat in a flock by the embers in hearthside ease. We pictured the meek, mild creatures where they dwelt in their strawy pen. Nor did it occur to one of us there to doubt they were kneeling then. So fair a fancy few would weave in these years, yet I feel if someone said on Christmas Eve, come see the oxen kneel in the lonely barton by yonder coombe our childhood used to know, I should go with him in the gloom, hoping it might be so. A poem from Me to You by Thomas Hardy from Christmas Eve 1915, repurposed for Chinese New Year 2021. Happy Year of the Ox. Let's try not to get gored. We will have one of our video poems for you Sunday, Valentine's Day, right here at Stein Online. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. Exactly one Chinese New Year ago, New York's public health commissar was saying, pay no attention to these racist sinophobes, get down to Chinatown and start celebrating. And a couple of weeks after that, New Yorkers started dying. So this new New Year marks, for me, the first anniversary of the end of our live music get-togethers at Stein Online. There's not a lot of live music out there of any kind, except by Zoom, which, to be honest, 
I've come to loathe Zoom music, which I regard as the death of music. So it's tough, because what is Valentine's Day without a great love song? So from the archives, here is our pal and my fellow Canadian, singer-pianist Carol Wellsman with the Stein Show Band and one of the real killer dissertations on the subject. People think all the great songs, all the great standards are by Cole Porter and Rogers and Hart, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're by very obscure fellas. This, this one is by a guy who wrote uh, hillbilly songs. In fact, he's literally a hillbilly songwriter in that his name is Billy Hill. That's Hill, comma, Billy, if you're looking him up uh, in the phone book. And even in the... Uh, it's impressive to get a laugh out of, uh, of Jean-Pierre. So that's... Uh, Jean-Pierre and John, uh, by the way, have, uh, have joined uh, Mathieu and Michelle and Carol for the, for the, for the full band uh, on this. And he, and he wrote songs... Billy Hill wrote songs in the 1930s that even then sounded 40 years old. They were, they were all like 1890s parlor ballads. He wrote mother songs and he wrote lugubrious death songs and he wrote uh, death on the train songs about uh, having a coffin riding in the box guy. He wrote, uh, there's a little box of pine on the 729. And again, we're not gonna ask uh, Carol to do that one. And then out of nowhere, uh, in 1936, he wrote, uh, a perfect 32-bar pop standard that was unlike anything else in uh, his catalogue. And for 80 years, it has gone around the world. And it's, it's funny, Cal, the, the, the little things about arrangements, but it's, uh, you, you rephrase uh, the end of the middle eight, as people are about to hear, uh, and and to me, that's actually what sold me on your version of the song. It's kind of just little little tweaks uh, and things like that that freshen up a, a song. How'd this, how'd this one catch your eye? Well, this is obviously from uh, part of the Benny Goodman songbook mm. uh, when we recorded mm. this album, and I was asked to sing it. And I, I, when I arrange music, being a piano player accompanying myself, uh, I like to take liberty in um, doing things that we call shout choruses. So in the middle of the song, much like you'd hear in a big, ba big band arrangement, um, where they would suddenly play an instrumental while the vocalist took a break, right. and they all blow uh, this... Uh, shout chorus they call it i like to play uh the block chords and pretend i'm a big band so and show off a bit yeah that's great you are the benny goodman orchestra uh, <laughs> do you do a one woman sing 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 while you're here because uh, we might hold you to that <laughs> that's a, uh, uh that that that's pretty good this this is uh this is a lovely so as you mentioned it's from your benny goodman album and uh i believe benny goodman had the first hit on this song and Billy Hill lived to hear that. He, he, he didn't hear a, a lot of other versions. He, uh, he died uh, very young on Christmas Eve 1940. And there's uh, three quarters of a century of this song's life uh, that he never knew about. And uh, it, to me, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an oddly... Uh, it, it's a very simple song in its form. Uh, and they're, they're kind of simple words, um, but they actually, uh, you, you put the whole package together with the music and uh, it's, it, it turns into magic somehow and no one quite knows what, uh, what makes it spark. Uh, but uh, we haven't got the Benny Goodman Orchestra here today, but these four guys <laughs> and Carol are gonna do their best. You gotta give a little, take a little, 
that's the story, that's the glory of love. Carol Wellsman. To give a little, take a little, and let your heart break a little. That's the story of that is the glory of love. You've got to laugh a little, cry a little, and let the clouds roll by a little. That's the story of that's the glory of love. As long as there's the two of us, we've got the world and all of its charms. And when the world is through with us, we've got each other's arms. We've got to win a little, lose a little, oh, and even have the blues a little. That's the story of that is the glory of love.
That is uh, good philosophy. You gotta give a little, take a little, let your poor heart break a little. That was uh, fantastic stuff, Carol, to uh, get your Valentine's weekend off to a romantic start. If you strike out this weekend, it's nothing to do with us because we set you up perfectly. Uh, thanks to Carol and the band. Carol on such cracking form. She was on our Christmas show with rock colossus Randy Backman, and backstage, Carol mentioned that she was doing a Latin album. And uh, Randy said, hey, I got a Latin song that I wrote. And Carol did a great arrangement of that Randy Backman song, and you can hear it on her newish CD, Dance With Me. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Thank you for all your kind words about my serialization of George Orwell's 1984, which wrapped up on Thursday night. It was an almost too timely tale for our time, so we should probably try to find something more oblique and tangential next time. Uh, but I'd like to round up a few of the responses before too much dust settles on our presentation. Michael Trueblood a first-month founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Pennsylvania, writes, What a special treat we have in Tales for Our Time. If there's an award for narrated stories and it goes to anyone other than Mark Stein, I call voter fraud. P.S. I prefer installment spelled with two L's, even if it's only <laughs> one at a time. Uh, we have... As you probably have figured out, we have Americans and Canadians who labor in the salt mines of Stein Online, and uh, they both installed different, entirely different spell checks. So you'll just have to put up with that. It adds to the gay variety of life. Um, and while I'm thinking about it, continues Michael, I think I'd prefer sitting in a clubhouse chatting with my fellow Mark Stein Club members more than just about anybody. Well, you wouldn't be alone there, Michael. Uh, thank you for that. Peter Lucy writes from the English Home Counties, a wonderful reading. I forgot or never realised until I heard it read aloud how moving were Winston's recollection of his wrecked childhood and his doomed mother and younger sister. That's why we do these serialisations, Peter, because Quoting the same famous lines and the same famous scenes crowds out all the other material necessary to support them and make a rich and satisfying fictional life. Uh, Tom Gelsonen, a First Day founding member, says, I read 1984 in high school decades ago and it left a lasting impression, but I didn't care for the two movies based on it that were made almost 30 years apart. It may be that dystopian novels such as 1984 and Atlas Shrugged, owing to their political and philosophical themes, are difficult to make into good movies. Listening to Mark's version has been time well spent. The length of each installment, usually about 20 minutes or so, was just right for me, and I enjoyed his voicing of the various characters. Even the reading of Emmanuel Goldstein's The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism. After the episode in which Winston was reading Chapter 1, I looked up this striking passage because it presciently describes the situation we find ourselves in 70 years after Orwell wrote it. Quote, 
The new aristocracy was made up for the most part of bureaucrats, scientists, technicians, trade union organisers, publicity experts, sociologists, teachers, journalists and professional politicians. These people, whose origins lay in the salaried middle class and the upper grades of the working class, had been shaped and brought together by the barren world of monopoly industry and centralised government. That's a marvel of a passage, Tom, all the way to those last words. The barren world of monopoly industry and centralised government. Martha writes from beautiful Victoria, British Columbia, a town I love and hope one day I will get to see again. Uh, Martha says, terrific job, Mark. A long read and masterfully done. Perhaps Julia was so named for Juliet from Romeo and Juliet. The cigar, Romeo e Julieta, was purported to be a favourite of Winston Churchill, although not sure Orwell would have known that. Probably small coincidences that signify not much of anything. Thank you for a very entertaining reading. Not at all, Martha. Winston is 39 years old at the beginning of 1984 and so was born in 1944, 1945 and pretty obviously named after the then Prime Minister who did indeed spur a revival of that Christian name even if in my experience it was mainly among baby boys in the British West Indies and Africa. So one would like to think there's a similar precision in the provenance of the female lead's name it's just that it's not quite so obvious, but it's still well worth speculating on. One more. On a related theme, Robert Matthews, a brand new Stein clubber from Texas, says, Thank you for the reading, Mark. I never thought before to contrast Winston and Julia's mutual betrayal of each other with Peter's denial of Christ. But this time, through Orwell's 1984, I was repeatedly struck with the implicit substitution of Big Brother, the party, for God. Unlike God, who, to borrow a phrase from one of C.S. Lewis's works, cannot ravish but can only woo, the party is like an abusive spouse beating their partner and demanding to be loved in spite of it or even because of it. And we through Winston give the party what it wants. This points up an aspect of the metaphorical good fight I believe we mustn't neglect in these times. We have to exercise our refusal to submit. If we stumble, we get back up. And if the ladies and gents making a stand with us stumble, we help them back up. If we want an Agincourt, we've got to encourage each other daily. We few, we happy, hopefully not as few as we thought. Well, there you have it. First post, my first since joining the club. Hopefully I and my thoughts are doing good service in a garden where leeks did grow. Cheers. Very interesting thoughts, Robert. Don't be a stranger and do make a second contribution. And that goes for every Stein Clubber. Join the comments thread or pitch me a question a few days hence in our next Clubland Q&A live around the planet. Mark Stein's Last Call
Valentine's Day and President's Day, or if you prefer, Washington's birthday, official federal observance thereof. Can we combine St. Valentine and Cupid's arrow with George Washington in any way? It's difficult. Did he write any love letters to Martha? Well, we don't really know, because upon his death in 1799, Martha Washington is believed to have burned all their correspondence. She did not particularly enjoy being a public figure, and she wanted just this one corner of their life together to remain private. Uh, So she is said to have destroyed everything, or so she thought. Martha died two and a half years later, and in the ensuing decades, three letters emerged, two of which were discovered underneath a desk drawer. This is one of those desk-concealed letters from June the 23rd, 1775. And if you know your American history, that's two months after the shot heard round the world in Massachusetts, And General Washington is in Philadelphia, getting his army together to head to Boston. So this is a letter of farewell to Martha, back at Mount Vernon, from a commander about to join battle in one of the most consequential wars in history. But as you will hear in its final lines, it is also as close as we get to a love letter from George to Martha Washington. Philadelphia, June the 23rd, 1775. My dearest, as I am within a few minutes of leaving this city, I could not think of departing from it without dropping you a line, especially as I do not know whether it may be in my power to write again till I get to the camp at Boston. I go fully trusting in that providence which has been more bountiful to me than I deserve, and in full confidence of a happy meeting with you sometime in the fall. I have not time to add more, as I am surrounded with company to take leave of me. I retain an unalterable affection for you, which neither time or distance can change. My best love to Jack and Nellie, and regard for the rest of the family, concludes me with the utmost truth and sincerity. Your entire George Washington. As near as we shall get to a love letter from the father of the United States, I retain an unalterable affection for you, which neither time or distance can change. A full-hearted George Washington. Jack, by the way, is a child from Martha's first marriage. She was widowed at the age of 25, and Nellie is Jack's wife. A Washingtonian valentine on this Valentine Washington's birthday weekend. That will almost do it for us. But will you indulge me uh, in one more classic love song from a couple of years back with Eric Harding at the piano and John Geary on guitar. This is by Ray Noble, composer, lyricist, bandleader, and actor. He played the silly upper-class Englishman in a lot of Hollywood movies and radio shows, and this is his uber standard, one of the half-dozen that will be left in the songbook when almost everything else has fallen away or been cancelled. Eric will play us in.
the mere idea of you the longing here for you you'll never know how slow the moments go the very thought of you and I forget to do the little ordinary things everyone ought to do I'm in a kind of daydream happy as a king and foolish though it may seem to me that's everything the mere idea of you the longing here for you You'll never know how slow the moments go Till I'm near to you I see your face in every flower Your eyes and stars above it's just the thought of you The very thought of you In every flower 
your eyes and stars above it's just the thought of you the very thought of you my It's just the thought of you, the very thought of you, my A song from me to you, words and music by Ray Noble. And, and my thanks to Eric Harding at the piano and uh, John Geary on guitar. And we will see you next time. Or as Ray Noble would say, good night, sweetheart. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.